Well, at this time, usually I would be preaching a message to you and we'd be, we're in the middle of Acts. We love the Bible so much at New Heights Church that we go through it verse by verse, book by book. But today we have a very special guest that I am thrilled and excited to announce because I get to bring a little bit of my home. You guys knew I grew up in Seattle, Washington in the Pacific Northwest. And we have a special guest today. Dr. Don Ross is gonna be here today sharing. He currently serves as the Northwest Ministry Network leader, and he's overseeing over 365 churches and 1,400 ministers. He served as a lead pastor of Creekside Church in Seattle from 1995 to 2014. He holds a BA in biblical literature from Northwest University. He graduated in 1997 with a doctorate of ministry degree, and his dissertation study focused on leading turnaround churches using his own church as a case study. He serves as an adjunct professor at Northwest University and as a member of the Society of Church Consultants. And he's the author of two books, Turnaround Pastor, which outlines his story of leading a turnaround church and key principles for a church turnaround and a tale of two churches. Why being both missional and Pentecostal matters. Don and his wife, Brenda, who's with him today, lives in Kenmore, Washington. They've got three children and seven grandkids. And on top of all of that, this is a family friend. He was close to my father. And so it's a great honor and a great privilege to announce uh, Dr. Don Ross. Would you guys give him a warm New Heights Church welcome? Nice to see that this little junior art kid that used to run around our neighborhood grew up to something worthwhile in the kingdom of God. That's what's amazing. Yeah, they lived in our neighborhood for a while, and his father, Jim, was a close friend, and it's just an honor to be with you guys today, and my wife, Brenda, is here. Love to greet each one of you. Probably not going to be able to do that, but I'm here on a special assignment, basically, to tell you our story. Here's what I know Jesus loves raising the dead. He just does. He raises dead lives. He raises dead marriages. He raises dead businesses. He raises dead churches. Jesus just loves to make something alive that was once dead. In fact, in the book of Revelation, he writes a letter to the church of Sardis and says, strengthen What is about to die, what was once alive and is about to die, strengthen it again. Focus in on the weak. When Jesus came and talked to us about his mission, he said, a smoking flax I will not quench and a bruised reed I will not break. I wondered for years what that meant. What happens to a smoking flax. If you're not going to quench the smoke, what do you do? You blow on it until a flame comes out of the smoke and it lives again. You bind up the bruised reed so that it is strengthened. Jesus loves to see a new day. So I want to share our story with you and I'd like to just open in prayer if we can do that. Can we do that? Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to be with you here today, to love you, to honor you with our obedience to choose to serve you. We are excited about all that you have for us. We want to make sure that we give you the glory. 
that you are honored in the decisions that we make. More importantly, that we recognize that you are the God and Savior of our life. Father, I thank you for what you are doing in this church. I thank you for the great history that this church has. But Father, I am more grateful for the future that you are now building. You are the God of the now. And you are the God who said, now faith is. And you spoke that into existence. Father, let our time today be valuable, inspiring, but more importantly, that it will call us to overcome fear and to be fully committed to obedience. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen. Well, you don't know me, and I don't know you, so let me give you a quick little background. My father's a pastor. He's going to turn 91 in October. My grandfather is a pastor. All three generations are church planters. We've been in work in the, in the work of the gospel literally for a couple of hundred years in this nation, and we can trace our family roots back. So I had to have my own individual call. And out of age 27, Brenda and I took our first church. Now, here's what I know, and I'm going to move towards Moses' bush story, and everybody knows that's going to be in Exodus chapter 3. You, you know it because I just told you. You, you may not know the Bible, but I just told you it's going to be in Exodus 3. You can turn there if you like to, and I'll read that scripture here in a few minutes. But we took our first church at age 27. There were eight churches open in our region, and I sent my name to seven of them because I didn't want to go to this one. I was afraid of being stuck in a little town. This, this town is called Vader, Washington. is literally listed in the book, Ghost Towns of America. It was a boom town that exploded during the logging boom and it diminished to about 300 people. And there was a little country church there and I didn't want to go there. And it was just this awful moment where I had when they called me. The other seven churches that I sent my resume to never sent a letter, never called, nothing. But the church I didn't want to go to called. How many of you ever had a similar experience like that? Okay, So I got on the phone and the chairman of the pulpit committee said, Brother Ross, this is the finest pulpit in America. If I was looking for a church, I wouldn't look in. I grew up in the area. I knew the town. I couldn't stop it. I laughed out loud on the phone. <laughs> Brenda and I had this conversation. And my wife, thank God for godly wives. She looked at me and she said, Don, I just want to play ball somewhere. Here's a team that wants us to wear their jersey. Why wouldn't you be open to this opportunity? And I said, okay. So we went there and served for six years. The church grew 400%. It was an amazing explosion in a town of 300. Our church grew to 200, built a new building. It was just this amazing thing. And I thought, man, this ministry thing's a snap. This is easy. Why do people complain? And then I got a call from another church that had diminished and they wanted me to come up and lead. I'd been the youth pastor for them a number of years earlier in a little town called Linden, Washington, right on the Canadian border, about three miles from the border, a town of about five, 6,000 people. And I said, okay, we'll entertain this. And we came up, began to lead that church. We're there for four years. The church doubled in attendance, built a new building. We're putting $20,000 a month on the mortgage. Everything is going up and to the right except 
for the internal leadership community, we were not in unity. God was about to teach me one of the most painful and necessary lessons of leadership. Now, yesterday I had the privilege of meeting with a number of your board members and your pastoral staff, your leadership community. We had a wonderful time of fellowship and open discussion, and it's obvious to me that God is working here. I did not have that at this church. There was a particular philosophy of ministry that they were pushing very, very hard, and I couldn't embrace that. And So there was this constant level of division, and it really reached a pinnacle at the four-year mark And I had a board meeting, and the board looked across the table and basically said, we believe that we would be better served if you were not our pastor. We'd like you to leave. They were kind, but there's no way for those words to be anything but direct. So I was out of a job. Fired. Painful. You know, it's an interesting story about how God used Joseph in the Old Testament. He promised him great things and then took him into tragedy. And as a young man, I felt like God had promised me great things and now I'm walking into tragedy. And when you step back and look at the whole picture, you get it. But when you're at the individual page in an individual chapter, all you can feel is acute pain. And some of you have felt that. Some of you are going through painful points in your life right now. Some of you are in painful points in your finances or your marriage or with your children. And it's hard for you to get perspective because everything is focused in on one conversation or one day or one moment. I want to challenge you to try and see things from God's perspective and let him show you what you're going through from his perspective. Well, I found myself out of a job living in a town unable to move. I put my name in at several other churches, but they always wanted to talk to my former employer. That never went well. So I sat out of ministry for two years. And God began to talk to me about my own arrogance, about my own pride. I knew how large our church had grown. I knew where it stacked up as I compared myself with other churches in our network. God began to bring those flashes back and forth. And one day, I'm driving home. I'd gotten a job as a staff pastor at another church in a nearby city, and I drove past my old church, and they're having a board meeting, and it just flipped. I pulled into my son's elementary school parking lot and for 15 minutes, and I'm going to tell you the truth, I'm not proud of this, but it is what happened. For 15 minutes I prayed. It's the only time I prayed like this in my life. I don't recommend it, but I prayed a 15-minute swear prayer to God. Every four-letter word that you can possibly think of came out of my mouth. I was so angry minister of the gospel, studying in seminary, sitting in my car, letting God have both barrels. Fortunately, I had a Lutheran minister that I was seeing as a counselor, and I told him about this episode. He said, Don, you realize that you're dealing with fear in your life? And I said, yeah, but I don't think I dealt with it very well. He said, well, what did you feel after you prayed that prayer? And I said, well, I felt relieved, 
And then I felt afraid. I was kind of afraid of God, of what he might do because of the way that I treated him. And he smiled and he said, that's a good answer. That's an honest answer. He said, let, let me give you another perspective. The Holy Spirit's been living inside you all these years. Well, all that anger, all that anger. Don't you think it's good that you confessed it to God? He already knew it was there. Now, granted, I wouldn't recommend that you pray like that all the time, but this time you got it out. There was that moment. And then he took me to the scriptures and he showed me how King David dealt with his anger and how he expressed to God, how he prayed over his enemies. God, grind them into powder. Take them into the dirt. David prayed like that because he realized he could be that honest with God and it wouldn't impact his relationship. Driving home from that session with that particular counselor, I'm in prayer trying to wrap my head around all that's happening. And I'm praying and saying, God, why did you let me go through this? Why? Why did you let me go through this? Have you ever asked yourself that? Why did my house burn down? Why did I get fired? Why, why, why? And I asked him, why did I have to go through that? And the spirit just whispered in my ear and he said, well, Don, you asked me to do this for you. And I said, during what devotional time in my life did I ever pray and ask you to do this to me? When did I ever request this kind of treatment? And the spirit was so gentle but so specific. He said, years ago you asked me for a vision. A vision that would produce Hundreds of people coming to Christ. A church based in small groups where people were in loving communities that genuinely cared for one another. Energetic worship. People giving to missions. Caring about lost. You asked me to create that vision inside you. And I said, yeah, that I remember. He said, if I would have manifested a fulfillment of that vision in your life during this phase of your ministry, it would have crushed you. All that's happened during this time is the cracks in your foundation have been exposed. Here's what I know. God wants good things for every one of us here today. Good things. But he may take us through hard times to prepare us for the good things so that the good things don't destroy us. Otherwise, we focus on the things and not him. And when you go through the hard times, there are no good things. You have a choice to focus on him, saying, make me better, or to turn your back on him and become bitter. I knew I had that choice. So Brenda and I had a conversation. Those were dark, dark times. Amazingly, Enough, I had worked as a church consultant, so I heated up this business. Isn't that a trip? You get to fail in ministry, which qualifies you to coach others towards success. Just this crazy thing. But for two years, I traveled, and one day I got a call from a church in Seattle. And the pastor was an interim pastor. He'd been there for about four years. He said, I heard you present. We'd like to talk with you. Our board would like to meet with you about possibly leading the church. At that time... 
the church had a reputation of being very large. It had been about 2,000 people. At that point, it was running about 350. It had dropped down to that point. And they said, we'd like, to, we'd like to visit with you. We're still looking for a lead pastor, and we'd like to have that conversation. And I said, okay. That began an eight-month conversation. I was not in a hurry to get back into the pulpit again. I wanted to make sure that God was really in this. And I began to do research in the church. The church had about 100,000 square feet on four acres in North Seattle. Very, very valuable property in that city. 70% of the income went to supporting staff, which is disproportionate. So the building was dilapidated. When you drove onto the campus, there were three main buildings, and you really didn't know which one to go to. It kind of looked like it, had, and I told the board this yesterday, it looked like this campus had been designed by a drunk, demon-possessed architect. You know, you just didn't know where to go. The signage was terrible. And we, we, we embraced that and began to understand what was happening and what God wanted to do. And when I met with the board, it was this moment where I felt Jesus whispering in my ear, I want you to do this. I've established you and what you've been through so that you're prepared to do it. Now, coming out of the crisis that I'd come out of, I have to honestly say I was probably about 70% recovered. But God teamed me up with the previous lead pastor at this church who had been the interim for about four years. And he really ran interference for me for about three or four years. It was this amazing relationship that we had. And I'd been there for about four or five years, and the church was moving on. It grew rapidly the first two years, and then the associate decided that it was time for him to plant a church, which I supported, and he left. So the church was running about 550, 600 or so. A third of the church went with him to help plant the church. That's 200 people. Another third of the church said, we don't want to go plant the new church, but we were only staying here because the former pastor, the associate was here. We're not really sure we want to follow you where you're going, Don. And so another third of the church just hit the bushes and went to a variety of churches in the Seattle area. So within 30 days, we dropped from 600 to 250 after I had been pastoring the church for three years. I'm praying that we're bottoming out. I'm praying for that. I'd like to tell you that's not the case. We continued to bleed for the next couple of years. We bottomed out at about 150. And during this period of time, there were individuals that would rise up against the change. And, and I, I came to understand. At, at that point, I didn't understand as I do now. All change produces fear. Every kind of change produces fear. And a turnaround story is the story of dealing with one chapter of fear after another after another. And the only way that we can deal with fear is to say, Father, I trust you. This is what I think. This is what I hope for, but I don't know. But one thing I am choosing to do is to trust you in the middle of the fear. Well, this became very personal one of the elders during this period of time put together a petition against me. A number of people had signed it. I was traveling on the East Coast in North Carolina. I had left my church in Seattle for a week to travel and do some, some meetings. And they had a meeting without me, and I found out it by one of the elders. So my board is now meeting in my new church 
to decide if I should be their pastor or not? What fear do you think cropped up in the middle of my mind? I'm scared spitless about being fired again. I mean, did I... I hope you understand that I am the most leakly, least likely person in my state to serve as the superintendent of so many churches. The path that we've walked, it's not one I would have chosen, but it's one that God used to create something wonderful. So I'm in North Carolina. I got a phone call from one of my loyal elders that said, Don, there's a meeting tonight to discuss your leadership. Half of the board is supporting you, half is not. And I said, well, thank you for letting me know. I wasn't really grateful. But I said those words anyway. And I thought, what do I do? How do I process this? I can't call Brenda. She can't do anything about it anyway. What do I do? Well, I looked across the parking lot, and there was a roadhouse steakhouse. You know what Christians do, right? I mean, we don't drink our problems away. Right? We don't drug our problems away. We eat our problems away. So I walked across there. I ordered the biggest steak I thought I could possibly handle. And I'm all by myself. Just Jesus, my New Testament, and a slab of beef. That's it. And I start reading through the New Testament, looking for a word from God. And Acts 27 pops out. Paul the Apostle has appealed to Caesar, so he's on a ship bound for Rome. They're in a storm. They've been at sea in a storm for 14 days. Now, I'm an offshore fisherman. I know what it's like to be offshore and be in ugly waters, but I've never been in a storm like that. I know what it feels like to be seasick, and there's 276 sailors on this ship, and Paul is the only one that's at peace in the middle of a storm. And I started reflecting on it, and the Spirit brought to mind that this man has the sentence of death three times over. He can get killed in the storm. He can drown. He can try and escape, and the soldiers will kill him. Even if he does make it to land, he's on his way to Rome, where he knows he will be executed. He is dead man preaching. And he stands up, and I just imagine that he stood up with a jug of water in one hand, a loaf of bread in the other, and he said... The God whom I've served has sent his angel, and he told me we're going to be okay. Nevertheless, the ship is going to be lost, and here's your instructions. And they all listened to him because they had hope for the first time in two weeks. And he spoke a word of hope. And in the middle of that storm, the man who should be the most afraid was the most at peace. And Jesus whispered into my ear and said, Don, will you let me bring peace into your heart in the middle of the storm that you're in right now? And I said, yeah. And I knew what that meant. Maybe I'll be fired again. I don't know. I do not know what the future holds. I'll walk through this alone with you. And I came back to my church. And we worked through the the angst with that team member. And God did a beautiful thing and we ended up sending that team member that had started this petition. We supported him for the next two years and he launched a wonderful ministry that went internationally and it turned out well. Not all of the issues were solved 
but it didn't sink the ship. Are you tracking with me right now? Okay. So we continued to move forward. We moved forward. It became apparent, though, as the church declined, that we could no longer hold on to our campus. And so we came to the decision that we should put it up for sale. Four acres, North Seattle. About that time, another school campus in a nearby town, about seven miles north of us, came open. And most of our congregation had kind of moved that direction. So we put in a bid and we bought that property, but we didn't have enough to fully cash it out and rebuild it the way we needed to. So we decided to put our building up for sale. There was an Indonesian congregation that had been renting our building, all college students, but what I didn't know is that their pastor, who was a CPA, had been investing the money. They had $2 million cash. So we put our property up for $9 million. They put $2 million down. We took a half a million and put down on the new property, paid off our current loan, and we think that we are off and running. We're going to be able to be into our new campus in six months. How many of you know best laid plans, right? One more twist. One more twist. That was 2007. Anybody remember what happened to our economy in 2007, 2008? It was terrible. It just plummeted right down. So the Indonesian church that was going to get a loan for the rest of the money was stopped cold. So the people who owned the property that we were buying from that were carrying our contract stepped up and told the Indonesian church, we'll carry the contract for you. So there was a financial triangle that happened. We borrowed money from the organization that had our new property. They loaned money to the Indonesian church so that they could pay us. So there's a triangle of payments going on every single month. Are you tracking with me? Okay. At that point, our church was 150 people, and we were making payments each month of 25,000. Now, if you know numbers, that's disproportionate. It was like a house of cards. But we weren't terribly nervous because it's only supposed to go on for about six months. Four and a half years later, it's still going on. What did God do? During that period of time, God changed us. And we started thinking like a brand new church plant. We had not been fully paid for the campus that we sold, but we lost ownership once we signed the papers, the purchase papers. So we had to rent back the gymnasium on our campus every month from the people who were buying our property who had not paid us. It's all bad. And that went on month after month after month. I remember one Sunday, my associate, who's also my son-in-law, who took over our church after I came to this office, came up to me one day and he said, Don, he said, you're coming across pretty angry. And I said, well, I think I am. I think I'm the only person bringing new people to this church. I wish these people would just... And he just looked at me and I realized what was coming out of my mouth. And one more time, God's dealing with my heart. The next morning at a local cafe, I'm praying. And I started reading a book. It's an interesting thing because I met with a real estate agent who was helping us and a missionary on the same day. I had breakfast with the missionary, lunch with the real estate agent, 
and I'm, I'm looking across the table at breakfast at this missionary, and he says, Don, you and I have traveled together internationally. You understand leadership. You can quote the statistics. You know the ratios. But there's a separation between your head and your heart. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? And I said, well, I understand the English words, but I don't get the concept. And he backed off, and he said, well, have you ever read Waking the Dead by John Eldridge? And I said, no. He said, can I just encourage you to read that? And I said, well, John, you know, I'd love to, but if I read every book that everybody recommended, I wouldn't do anything else, and I just swept it away. He said, okay. Lunch, I sat down with our real estate agent. His name's Brian. And Brian was a godly man, and he said, I feel like God's given me a word I have to share with you. And I said, yeah? And he said, you know, Don, you and I have done conferences together here in the States for buildings and such, and you understand leadership, and you can quote the ratios and all the statistics, and right now I think I'm listening to a recording. And then he says, but there's a separation between your heart and your head. Have you ever read Waking the Dead by John Eldridge? And I said, no, but I think I'm going to go buy it immediately after this lunch. And I did. And I had been reading this. And I'm reading it at this little cafe the next morning. About it's, it's all about the heart. And what's inside your heart. And God spoke to me and he said, Don, what if your church never grew? What if your assignment from now until the end of the time that you serve at this church, that this church never grows past 150 people? What about that? Would you do that if I asked you to do that? And I went, oh, oh. I wanted to be the church growth guy. I wanted to be the church that grew. Come on, lost people matter to God. I had all the language. I had all the biblical reasons. I could quote the scriptures, but my heart was not in alignment with God. And then he revealed the ugliness of what was going on. As I recognized that I wanted our church in Seattle to grow so that the church in Linden would hear about it and they would feel terrible about firing such a wonderful pastor. How many of you know that revenge is a poor motivation for evangelism? What happens in the context of a turnaround is God reveals what's in our hearts. He takes out the ugliness. He takes out the darkness and replaces it with his light. I just burst into tears in that little cafe. I just burst into tears. That week we had a meeting with our elders and the real estate agent and he said, you know, your church can grow, but it's going to have to become an outreach church, which means it's going to have to change at its heart level. And I started thinking about that. Those words just echoed. Went back to that same cafe, I say, that, that same booth, I'm hoping that God will speak to me again. Even though it's painful, I'm getting direction, I'm getting clarity. And I'm praying and I'm praying, how does God change a heart? And I'm reading about how God changed hearts in Moses. When Moses wanted to change, or excuse me, when God wanted to change the hearts of two million people who thought like slaves, 
thought like people in bondage, thought like people locked in poverty, thought like people locked with others telling them what to do. And God wanted to change their heart. He didn't start with the nation. He didn't start with the tribal leaders or the elders. He started with one man. His name was Moses. God changed Moses' heart and helped him deal with fear. I want to take you to that scripture in Exodus chapter 3. Beginning at verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert, came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that through the, though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now there's something powerful here that God revealed to me in that moment, in that little booth at that cafe that I had never seen before. God said, take off your sandals. Well, in Middle Eastern custom, also in in Eastern custom, to take off your, your, your shoes, your sandals, is a sign of respect, but it's also a sign of ownership. I'm taking my shoes off. My son-in-law is Japanese, and we take our shoes off at their house as a sign of respect, but it also shows we recognize that you own this place. So Moses is recognizing that this is the mountain of God. And then God says to him, listen carefully, I am the God of your father. What's missing there? There is no S. There's no letter S after the word father. You can read this in every translation, in every language. There's no S after the word father. I always had read this, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But that's not what the scripture says. And my eyes zeroed in on that. I am the God of your father. And instantly the story of Moses' beginnings began to reflect inside my head. And I recognized that at the burning bush, God was talking to Moses about what happened between Moses' father and Pharaoh. Moses' parents, Amram, his father, Jochebed, his mother, when all of the children were to be killed and thrown into the Nile River, Amram stood up. He faced down the edict of Pharaoh. He refused to bow to fear. And he said, my son will not be killed. Not on my watch. Not while I'm his parent. I will stand for my son. Can I just challenge those of you that have children who are wayward to take that word into your heart that you will stand for your children. Amram said, you will not have. And he stood up and faced down the edict of Pharaoh. Why is Moses in the desert at this bush? 
because he ran from Pharaoh. He was afraid of Pharaoh. Here is a man that had lived for 40 years in the desert and lived in fear for 40 years. And God is saying to him, Moses, I was there with your dad. He stood strong. Think about it, Moses. If your dad had not stood strong against Pharaoh, you would be dead. Your mother raised you. Remember Miriam went to the queen, said, let me get one of the Hebrew mothers who was nursing because so many of them had lost their babies. It wasn't unusual to find a nursing mother. She went and got her mother, Jochebed, who nursed Moses. Do you think for a moment all those years that she didn't tell him stories about the God of Israel? About how they had come, where they had come from? Moses has all of that in the back of his mind and he realizes, I have to walk the very same path as my father. I have to refuse to give in to fear. Let me tell you something. This church is not done making critical decisions and every one of those decisions will have an element of fear attached to them. And we make a decision whether we give in to fear or give in to faith. I'm not telling you that you shouldn't have practical conversations, count the cost, do your due diligence. Absolutely. But ultimately, if any leader, if any church succumbs to fear, it will move towards a road of destruction, not growth. And that's what's happening in Moses' life right now. And I saw that. I saw that. And God spoke to my heart and he said, Don, you can't give in to fear. <coughs> Excuse me. He said, you cannot give in to fear. You're going to have to stand up and make sure that you don't succumb yourself. In the back of my mind, I knew what had happened. I'd been at the church now at this point for about eight years, seven, eight years. We'd had 15 elders resign and leave. About a third of them had left because they'd retired and transferred out. But 10 of them had left over negative circumstances. And God spoke to my heart. He said, I want you to go to all of those that you can find and ask three questions. Number one, what have you learned since leaving our church? Number two, why do you think it's difficult for our church to hold on to high-capacity leaders? And number three, if you could speak into my life and tell me anything about my leadership, what would you want to say? Now, I did not tell Brenda that God told me to do this. I didn't tell my board. I didn't tell my staff. I wanted a big back door so I wouldn't have to do it and be accountable to anybody. But over the next two weeks, I had 12 conversations. Most of them were, were, were civil and pretty not. A couple of them took a piece out of me, but I asked for that information. God wanted to know how serious I was about growing about making sure that I was prepared for the next phase so that I could deal with the cracks in my foundation. Because when somebody is deceived, no one who is deceived recognizes the deception themselves. Only trusted brothers and sisters recognize the deception in the lives of other people. I had to have others speak into my life, which meant God had to bring me to a place where people could speak into my life so I could become the humble leader filled with his strength for the next phase that he had for us. At the end of that time, I called our church together. I invited all these leaders and I preached a sermon very similar to the one that I'm telling you. 
right now. And I stood up in front of my congregation and I asked them to forgive me because I had been a leader that was filled with fear. On one hand, I said, I'm your shepherd, come close to me. On the other hand, I said, don't come too close because I don't trust you. You could hurt me. The thing about Christ's love is that we have to be willing to be healed after we have been hurt to the point that we are willing to be hurt again and again and again or we have never been fully healed. At the end of that service, the name of the sermon was Open Heart Surgery. (laughs) I'll never forget it. Because the next day I was on a treadmill with my cardiologist and he said, "Uh uh-oh. And I was scheduled for open heart surgery within 24 hours of teaching on it. God had this way of getting my attention. And during that period of time, he worked deeply on my heart and the hearts of all of our elders. What was amazing is at the end of that period of time, something miraculous happened and we recognized for the first time in years, new people began to come to our church. People were inviting their friends. I changed inside my heart. We began to do what your church does, teach verse by verse out of the Bible. People had stopped bringing their Bibles to church. Now they started bringing them again. It was just this amazing thing. Within two weeks of that moment, President Bush signed the TARP bill. Some of you will remember that. The Indonesian church had had an application into Bank of America who'd stopped all loans for nonprofits. They opened it up again and said, anybody who's already filled out an application, we will fund. Bank of America got the first 30 billion of that amount of money. Within two weeks, the Indonesian church had their money, which meant we had our money, and God opened the doors, and it was like a rocket ride. Within six months, our campus was done. We moved in with 200 people. Our first service, we had 488 people. Next week, we dropped down to our normal attendance. They were all there, looky-loos, cheering us on, okay? We, we actually marched from our old campus to the new campus, like the children of Israel. And it began to grow. Through the summer, we added our second service in October. We added one new service every 10 months for the next five years. It was like a rocket ride. It was incredible. Our missions giving multiplied by 10 times over that period of time. People chose to give to God. Amazing stories. We had meetings. We had a a, a, a communion service inside the building before we were able to move in. And we wrote the names of people on the wall that we wanted to come to Christ. Many of those people came to Christ before we moved into the new building. One Sunday... We're in our new building and we're worshiping. We'd been there for about a year or so. And my daughter came up to me and she whispered. She said, Dad, Dad, I think I got a word from the Lord. And I said, what? She said, I, I'm, I'm not sure about this, but I think we're supposed to give our shoes today in an offering. And I'd never heard of such a thing. And she said, I just think it's from God that we're supposed to give our shoes. So I'll let you do with it whatever you, whatever you need to do. And she started to walk away and I grabbed her and I said, whoa, 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 whoa. God didn't tell me, he told you. This is a prophetic word for our church. You have to give this word. She goes, oh, dad, I can't, I can't. Young mother, oldest child. I said, honey, I'll stand next to you. So Kelly and I walked up and she stood next to me and held the microphone. She cried her way through it. And at the end of the service, we had an offering. 
with all of the men giving their shoes on the right-hand side, all the women giving the shoes on the left-hand side. People came up with children, took their little booties off and gave them down there. Now, it might seem strange to you, but we were deeply connected with the Union Gospel Mission. And at the end of that service that day, we had six bags of shoes that we donated to the Union Gospel Mission. Now, this is a long way from a church that was locked in poverty. We had a poverty mentality. I looked down that morning, and there was a gal by the name of Bria. She came up afterwards, and she said, Don... I'm doing this because I know God wants me to do this, but these are brand new cowboy boots. They are expensive. I have saved for them, and this is the one Sunday, and I'm supposed to give them. And she cried as she took her boots off and put them at the altar, and I told her the story that 10 feet from where she was standing, her and her live-in boyfriend, who are, they are now married, they're now serving Jesus, I said, your name is on the wall right there. We prayed for you in this room before it was finished at a communion service that you would come to Jesus and that you would serve him fully with your heart. This represents that. She started crying. I started crying. It was an awesome moment. Powerful things started happening inside. God spoke to us about having a special missions offering during Christmas. The most we had ever given at Christmas was $2,500 for a church plant. Got in touch with a missionary and you're going to raise money for the working poor in Honduras. He said, Don, I want you to come down. Most of the women in Honduras are single moms. And we're going to link up with the missionary. And we're going to have an, a trip all day. And you're going to meet six women. And one of them are going to get a new house. Your church is going to buy and build this house. And that was our goal. We're going to raise $10,000 to do that. And I went, oh, I just don't know if we can do that. So I got in his truck. And we went around. And I met Rosa. She was the first one. And I met her and her mother and her daughter. They're garbage pickers. They worked in the heaps of garbage in Honduras, picking out plastic two-liter bottles, crushing them, and then selling them. They made about $150 a month. And out of that money, she had found a little plot of land and had purchased, and she owned this land, and she was praying for a new home. And they're little, they're little homes, 20 by 20, that, that we come down, we build them in about four days, but it, it's like a palace to these folks. And I got back in the truck, and I said, Jesus, I cannot. How am I going to meet six women, and, one, and five of them you say no to, and one of them says yes. In that movie, The Guardian, with um, Costner in it, you know, he's a rescue swimmer, you know. He's talking to, to Kuchner, who's the young swimmer, and he says, how do you know whom to save? He says, you save the first one, and you keep going until you don't have any more strength. And I said, that's what we're going to do. We're going to the first one. I said, it's going to be Rosa. I went back home, and I had pictures of Rosa, and I told the stories of Rosa, and we took an offering. The goal was 10000 We raised $12,000. First time we'd ever raised that. So the next year, we said, well, maybe we can build two houses. Let's see if we can raise 25000 and the offering was 32000 More people started giving, but also people started giving more. So the next year, I said, well, maybe we could hit, you know, 50000 We hit ninety-eight. It's just this incredible growth that started happening. So we started then in September telling people about the Christmas missions offering. And then we started breaking out into goals where we would give locally and give regionally and give globally. The next year was 112000 
The next year was 140000 My last year was $167,000 during the Christmas season giving to missions. It's an incredible. To this day, our church is still doing that ministry. There's something powerful that happens when a church goes from being afraid to trusting God. When a church goes from having a poverty mentality to a mentality that says, freely I have received, freely give. Now here's what I know. Here's what I know. On that day when Moses sent in the 12 tribes, and Joshua and Caleb came back with a positive report. And ten, tribe, ten of the spies said, no, the giants will kill us. We can't go in there. They allowed fear to make their decision. But two men, Joshua and Caleb, said, no, we are strong enough. Our God in us is strong enough. We can do this. And they stood strong. On that day, if I would have been a 12-year-old junior high kid, I would have hoped that Caleb was my grandpa or maybe my great-uncle. I would have wanted to be related to one of those two men who stood for strong. The journey that this church is on right now, that this church right here, New Heights is on, you are going into a promised land. You've never been there before. You cannot let the past be your guide to the future. God is doing a new thing. You can rejoice in the past. You can thank God for the past. You should rejoice in the wonderful things that happened. There are missionaries on the field today because somebody said yes to the dream of planting this church. Pastors all around. This church has a wonderful legacy. But you cannot guide your future by what's happened in the past. God will guide you into a way that you have never gone before. When God took the children of Israel out of Egypt, he said, I'm going to guide you into a way that you have never gone before. Because you have to trust God. In the same way that those who have gone before you trusted God for this church to get to this place in its history. And here's what I know. That God is asking every one of you here this morning, will you accept the spirit of Joshua and Caleb that you will survive the desert and move into the promised land? That you will walk through whatever challenges are before you so that you can get to what God has promised you? Will you refuse to allow fear to rule in your decisions. From this church, from people in this room right now, will come church planters. There are people who are listening to me right now that in your own private life, God has been talking to you about stepping out and starting a new ministry, and you don't know what to do. You don't know how to do that. If you say yes, Jesus will show you what the next step is. There's enough light in the lamp of God's word for one step at a time. He won't show you the whole path. He will only show you the next step. There are some of you here in this room that God is speaking to about serving on the mission field. God's calling you to do that, and he's waiting for you to simply say yes, and he will show you the next step. There are some of you, God has been talking to you about opening your house to serve. Some of you, God has been talking to you about opening your wallet to serve. Some of you, God has been talking to you about opening your time to serve. That you've had a list of excuses that said, no, this is why I can't go into the promised land. I'm asking you to lay that aside and say, I will go forward. I will go forward. I will do what God has asked me to do. So if you're willing to embrace the challenges of the future, to let the Spirit guide you into a new day that He will create, that will transform the lives of hundreds and possibly thousands of people, He's inviting you to be a part of that future. 
I'm going to ask you to join me up front with every head up, every eye open, and everybody looking all around. I'm asking you to stand to your feet and get to the nearest aisle and just walk and line right across this aisle. I want to pray for every one of you that is choosing to be a part of that army of compassion. You can do that right now. Come and join me. You won't be the only one. You will not be the only one. Father, I want to thank you that you are the one that raises the dead. Your word tells us in Hebrews that Abraham, in the process of sacrificing his own son, recognized that you are the God of the resurrection, that you are the God of the living and the dead, that you are the God that brings a brand new future. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. I want to pray for those of you that are up here right now because some of you have said yes to Jesus to walk this path. And for some of you, is a tremendous sacrifice. There are some of you that are dealing with tremendous physical illness right now and you have been beseeching the Lord to bring healing into your life. You've been asking him that there will be an anointing that will bring healing into your life. Father, I pray for that healing to descend on every person who is at this altar right now who is dealing with physical illness. I pray that you will manifest your power and that they will not walk in fear, that they will trust you and confidence in you for every day. There are some of you up here that came and said yes to Jesus, even in the middle of great strife in your marriage. Father, I pray that there will be harmony between husbands and wife, that they will walk in humility. We cannot serve you and serve others with anger, with resentment, with hurt, monitoring and, 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 and causing us to be deferred from following you. Father, I pray that you will bring wholeness to that marriage in Jesus' good name. In Jesus' good name. There are some of you up here this morning, you know that you have a call to ministry. You know that you do. You haven't talked to your pastor about it, but you need to make a decision to do that very thing. God is asking you to serve in ministry. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Now, those of you who are up here, I want to give you an assignment. I want everybody to open your eyes. Just look at me for just a moment. Will you do that? All of you that are up here, I just want you to listen to me, okay? Every single one of you know one, two, or three people. You Maybe you know ten. But I want you to think of at least a couple of people that you know that do not know Jesus. They don't know Jesus. God wants you to be a missionary to them to start with, okay? For the next two or three minutes, I'm going to ask you to lift your hands and intercede for them. Somebody prayed for you or you wouldn't be here today. Don't be the last link in the chain. God's calling you to serve them, asking you to make a commitment to love them, to send them a text, to meet them for coffee, to let them know that God loves them. And for some of you, you have been held hostage by fear. You love the people, but you have not been able to open your mouth and talk to them. And I'm asking you to be ready because the Spirit will put you in a situation where you will see them or hear from them and you will be prompted by the Spirit to reach out to them. And in that moment, you will either overcome your fear or you will succumb to fear. Are you tracking with me? 
okay? I want you to think about who are those two or three people are. You got, you got them in your mind right now? All right, now I want you to close your eyes. I want you to lift your hands, and I want you to begin to intercede. Father, I pray for them. Father, I pray for lost people. I want you to open your mouth. I want you to say their name out loud before the Father. Just say their name out loud before the Father. You are interceding them. You're interceding for them. Father, thank you for that. Father, we trust you. We trust you. We trust you. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. 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 Father, I know that as we pray for lost people, that you open doors. I know that, that, that some people this next week will be in contact with individuals who are far from you. I know that they are ready to open their heart, to walk towards you. Father, I pray that no one here will be held hostage by fear, either for the future of this church or for individual ministry of making disciples. Father, thank you for all of the potential that this church has. Lead it into a future that is glorious for your name and beneficial for their lives. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen.